Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Liberty Language Services. Liberty Language Services is a woman and minority-owned language service company. They have over a decade of industry experience providing on-site, video remote, and over-the-phone interpretation, translation, and ASL services to public and private sector clients. They're continuously recruiting for freelance interpreters and translators, so make sure to check out their website for new career opportunities. Liberty is passionate about making interpreter education more accessible to everyone. So whether you're new to interpreting or have been interpreting professionally for years, you can take advantage of their online courses, workshops, and CEUs. Their most popular online course is the Professional Medical Interpreter. It's a self-paced, comprehensive, 40-hour medical interpreting course for individuals looking to get qualified to interpret in medical and healthcare settings. Upon completion of the course, students will be able to earn the title of Qualified Medical Interpreter. And for a limited time only, Liberty is offering a discount for the Professional Medical Interpreter course to brand the interpreter listeners. Use the discount code BTI50 when you sign up online for the Professional Medical Interpreter to get $50 off the course. You can find the discount code and more information about Liberty Language Services in the episode notes. Welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Thanks for showing up with me today. I really appreciate it. Can you believe it's already December? We're in the last month of the 2021 year, and we're still talking about COVID, aren't we? Ah, yeah, amongst other variants now. But anyway, I hope you're doing well today and every day for that matter, because today's guest is joining us all the way from Japan. He's here today to give us a little bit of insight regarding a concept called de-verbalization, right? What? Maybe you've heard of it, actually. Or like me, maybe you hadn't heard of it. And after today's conversation with our guest today, you may be interested actually in looking and probing a little further on this topic. But today I'm excited to share my conversation with Ryohi Onishi. Ryohi Onishi has been an interpreter for 10 years, during which he has worked in various companies and industries. He gave a TEDx talk at TEDx Kobe 2019 where he attempts to break down the concept of deverbalization. He began his interpreting career as an interpreter, going straight into a cruise for three months as their official interpreter. Years later, he interpreted for Audrey Tang, Taiwan's digital minister. Today, Rio, he is a grad student, a house husband, and continues to be an interpreter. So without further ado, here's Ryohi Onishi. Ryohei, it is a pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you? Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. I am very much looking forward to today's conversation and what you have to share with all of us. So thank you for accepting the invitation to be here. 
Mm-hmm. I'd like to begin actually with something that's quite common for uh, all of our listeners, uh, which is basically having you, the guest, taking us back to your childhood. So I'd like to ask you before we even get started on the you know nitty gritty stuff, what is a fond childhood memory of yours growing up? Yeah, um, if I can try to talk about my childhood memories with the language professional stuff, Try to connect these two things. Um, it was not like an uh, international environment. Uh, it was totally monolingual environment that I was that I was living in. No one spoke English. No one spoke any other languages than Japanese. Uh, Japanese is my, my mother tongue, of course. So um, it was just a normal um, uh, family in Japan. Um, so really, um, maybe I'm disappointing you because I don't have any special thing <laughs> that you may be interested in hearing. But um, yeah, it was just a normal uh, family that I was in. Yeah, well, I guess that really piques my interest even more because I feel that, you know, you speak English quite well. And, you know, when we get into a a little further with regards to, you know, um, a TEDx talk that you gave down the line, we'll talk about Mm -hmm. that. I mean, it's, it's very obvious there because the, the, the conversation was in English. Mm -hmm. So, so then tell us when did English come into your life? Mm. Yeah. Thanks for that question. I, and this, um, brand the interpreter opportunity was a great one because I was able to look back on my childhood memories and others. I think there are two things of that really led me to the language professionals or the contact with English language. The first one was when I was 13 years old, uh, when I was the first grader of a junior high school. And then oh, there was a year end exam. And of course, out of main nine subjects, I had English and English was the highest score that I got out of the nine subjects. So I just naturally thought like, okay, maybe English is my thing. Maybe English is my subject uh, compared to other math and uh, other studies. Um, So that was the first kind of encounter or the positive attitude that I started to have regarding English language. And the second one is uh, unhappening that happened really recently. because my parents broke up a really long time ago and I didn't have a lot of opportunities to see my father. And just five or 10 years ago, when I had an opportunity to go to his place and saw some of the books in his bookshelf, I found out that he had some books related to Japanese language. And then in particular, Japanese etymology books. And then I also remember that he has been a designer working on the Japanese language copywriting and, you know, writing and creating some posters or doing designing. So that means that he had to deal with writing Chinese characters, I mean, Japanese characters. Um, So that's why I think he was naturally interested in Japanese language etymology. How do we compose the language? What is the really origin of the roots of the the words that we use and stuff like that? And that, that was the point that I thought that, okay, maybe we have something in common, you know, um, that was a language interest, interesting language that I had and he had. And he went to the designing perspective and I went to the interpreting track. Um, although we um, went to the different destinations, but I thought that um, the interest in language was something that we shared in common. Yeah. 
That's so great. Yeah. And I think that, you know, even in, in speaking about, you know, your experience right now, how it all comes together, right? Like for you, um, eventually. So you in at a, such a young age at 13, you think that there's probably something here, right? You're thinking like the English language. Did you then, uh, is this something that is offered in school? Or is this something that you have to do like a private tutor for? What does schooling look like with the second language out in Japan? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, in Japan, right now, the English education is in the traditional phase. There is like a really big um, kind of revolution or reform in education in Japan uh, in 2020 to 2021. The university entrance exam is now transitioning to a new phase where we are more focusing on the listening and speaking perspectives. And there are a lot of criticism against that, but, um, um, you know, English education is changing. And uh, looking at the school system in Japan regarding English education, it's basically starting from the age of 13, um, the beginning of junior high. But in some elementary schools, they start much earlier. Uh, under the name of foreign language exposure classes, which predominantly means English. We don't learn Russian before English. Um, so that's the kind of uh, the situation in Japan. But um, there are a lot of people who are exposed to English at really early age, like three or four years old. I have, I have a daughter who is now four years old. And I try to speak to her sometimes in English so that she can get the exposure to this language and the prosody and the pronunciation in this uh, different language from Japan, Japanese. Um, so that's what I thought. Um, but yeah, uh, a lot of English exposure in the um, uh, educational system in Japan right now. Very nice. So I'm wondering now, because learning a second language, as we as we know, you know, as as interpreters or translators does not necessarily equal an interpreter or a translator, right? So you're learning a second language and, you know, you're delving into, into this whole notion of, of uh, English as a second language. Do you recall a moment where you thought, perhaps I can use this, you know, as, as a profession, like as an interpreter, a translator, like what, was there a particular situation that made you think that route? Yeah. Thanks for that question. Um, at the final year of my university, uh, actually, I was in the Kobe City University of Foreign Studies, which Kobe City actually is next to Osaka Prefecture. I think that's an easier way for you guys to understand where we are. <laughs> and yeah, so at the final year of the university, I uh, took some of the classes related to interpreting. And then the professor at that time appointed me for one of the candidates for or um, competitor in uh, the national contest for student interpreting. And that was the third time since it started. And now it's been like uh, 11th or 12th time right now. Since last year, I think it's been conducted online. But um, I did the competition there and I got the second prize. And that's when I thought like, okay, maybe interpreting is really exciting and really um, uh, challenging, but rewarding at the same time. You, you like English and you use English to the maximum extent and you communicate and transmit the ideas to the other side of the world. Um, that's the kind of beginning for me to start seriously thinking about becoming an interpreter. What was that competition about? Do you remember? How did, how did that look like? 
Yeah, um, I just remember that I got the second prize. I don't, just don't want to remember. I just maybe intentionally trying to forget about yeah. how difficult <laughs> it was. <laughs> but I think it was about the British legal system. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I think we, you know, th- there, there are some topics that were already like briefed uh, beforehand. And we had gotten the list of words that we have to kind of research. And I think I was in charge of the different types of uh, legal professions, including barristers and solicitors, um, the different types of lawyers. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's one of the points I misinterpreted. And when I, when I heard the recordings of that uh, uh, competition, I mean, my interpreting part, I totally misinterpreted uh, one of the words, which really made me impressed. But that really showed me the dynamics dynamics and the difficulty at the same time like how delightful and enjoyable interpreting is you know challenging but rewarding and um, yeah and that is a challenge i've been taking on for the past 10 years now yeah up until then do you ever recall even noticing an interpreter somewhere that kind of caught your eye up until then or did you you know, did it start coming into view once you started doing your studies? Do you remember? Yeah, um, the direct contact with interpreting uh, was, you know, as I said, the National Interpreting Contest. But on the other hand, right after graduation, I started working in an educational company. But I left the company uh, just one year after that because of my mismatch with the job and a mismatch with my boss at the time. Um, But one of the colleagues at the time said, like, Okay, are you interested in interpreting? There is one opportunity uh, at an international organization called Peace Boat. This is a this is um, the um, international uh, group that uh, conducts uh, global voyage throughout the world, and it, so uh, basically you can go cruise around the world while interpreting. And then if you go as an interpreter, you don't have to pay for the all the accommodations, all the vessel fees, and all the other stuff. So basically you're interpreting it for free, but at the same time, you're kind of earning money and earning or getting your experience and exposure to interpreting it environment. So that was the kind of beginning for me to uh, get the exposure, uh, get to know more about interpreting. And at the same time, learned the, the, the dynamics of being appreciated after I did the interpreting job, like people say, thank you, you know, and actually I wanted to thank them. Because they listen to my interpreting, you know, use my foreign language skills. And, it, you know, I was content. I was satisfied with what I was doing. And they said, thank you. So I was like, wow, it's me who wanted to say thank you. But, you know, that was the beginning um, of my encounter with interpreting. Oh, wow. And so then it just flourished from there. So how long were you gone on this on this assignment? Was it was it weeks or days or do you remember? Yeah, it was 80 days. Um, basically, it lasts about three months. Depending on the cruise, it, it's sometimes 100 days or a little less than that. But basically, you'll be in, in the same uh, ship for two to three months living together with other people. Right now, it's so difficult to do that because of the COVID-19. Right. But yeah, uh, at the time, like exactly 10 years ago, it was like heaven for me. You're cruising around the world in a ship and you have a lot of friends that you make you know uh you get acquainted with and you do the interpreting and people look at you and people say thank you and all all the things that was like heaven for me man hey you make it sound like such a great experience when you first started interpreting some of us started out in the like in the bums of 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 places (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and you're over here traveling as soon as you got started. What <laughs> that sealed the deal, I imagine. You're like, oh yeah, this is this is definitely interesting. You came back and did you start navigating how to get more assignments or was it put on pause? Yeah, uh, actually, after I finished that assignment, I started to search for interpreting jobs in Japan. Um, and in the next April, I started working for Mitsubishi Heavy Industry. Uh, maybe you know the name Mitsubishi. That's one of the major companies in Japan. And I started working with Indians, uh, Indian engineers uh, in there. They are trying to automate their designing process with the help of uh, Indian engineers. Uh, so I'm not going to get into the technical aspects of that. I do not remember much, but <laughs> yeah. <you> know, <laughs> yeah, that was the second assignment. I worked there for two years. And then that was the kind of trend I started to get into. Um, I started working for different uh, organizations as an in-house interpreter um, for the past almost like eight and a half years before becoming a freelancer um, last year. Oh, wow. It sounds like a lot of your experience came from um, business interpreting, yeah. right? Like with Mitsubishi, excuse me. And um, mm -hmm. and then, of course, you know, your your trip that you took for three for three months, you know. Yeah. But what about it do you feel like when you think back at it, like when you first started, what about the interpreting in business? Was it the business aspect was it, you know, um, something about interpreting? Was that connection when we talked about the language earlier with, you know, with your father's books? What about interpreting, like, really caught your attention that you recall? Yeah, I still experience this even after 10 years. But when you do interpreting, especially simultaneous interpreting, um, you speak English or Japanese. And then I still remember this. It was 2017 when I was in Chiba Prefecture that was next or close to Tokyo metropolitan area. When I was working in a company there, uh, the company was called QVC, by the way. And there was an American executive there and Japanese rep there talking on the other side, or on both sides of the table. I was interpreting in the middle. And then since I was doing the simultaneous interpreting, the Japanese and American people were nodding almost at the same time as the person spoke in Japanese. I was translating the English, the American was nodding. And then that kind of simultaneously, uh, simultaneity that kind of made me really realize that, oh, really, that is a moment I'm connecting people, you know, through language. And that still thrills me. Um, like, it's, it's like a magic sometimes, you know, I'm speaking a foreign language. And the Americans or any other um, foreigners who understand English nod with my interpreting. And, and that was a moment that I felt just last night. Um, actually, I was interpreting for a Taiwan digital minister, Audrey Tan, if you know, him, know her. Um, and that, I, I was really thrilled to have that experience because uh, she is a Taiwan digital minister. And she is now on YouTube everywhere uh, in the world. So such a famous person I was translating last night and she was listening to my interpretation and she was nodding. Yes, yes, yes. And I, uh, at the end of the interview, she said like, thank you for the great interpreting. And I was like, wow, that really made my day. I mean, yeah, it made my I night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that, that was a moment I still feel. And I used to feel back 10 years ago. So interpreting is my calling in a sense, 
using language to really connect the people, um, doing, yeah, doing what I, what I love to help people. Yeah. yeah, that I I really love the way you put that. Um, connecting people through language, I think yeah. that's that's a perfect um, you know description of of the type of work that wh- that we're doing. And a lot of times behind the scenes, so you know when yeah. when people do come up and say something in appreciation of your work, yeah, absolutely. You know, you you do you do get that great feeling just because uh, half the time we're not you know we're not the focal point, obviously. Right. I'm 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 curious now, uh, Ryohei, with with the conversation and your experience now through the years, and you know, I, it's fascinating when I talk to people and their enthusiasm for their for for what they do is still there. It's still alive. It's still present. Earlier, you mentioned characters in the Japanese written language, right? Yeah. And it made me think of you know the the letters in the English language and what that meant for you growing up and seeing these vast differences of, you know, there's the spoken language, but then there's the written language. How were you able to navigate, you know, at the beginning at such a young age, but then through the years, um, what I imagine, I imagine, and here's where you're really going to have to guide me by the hand that there's characters that are non-existent in the English alphabet, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. how do you navigate before you're even introducing the language to someone else? How do you navigate that yourself? Does that make right. sense? Yeah, I think you're asking about how did I get the English language, like including all these, like, um, I would say, the sea of language world, I would say, how, how did I navigate myself to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of that is, physicality um that is uh, the keyword that i have uh, in order to learn a language people think that when you learn a foreign language or second language you learn on your desk you learn on a paper but that's not everything right um when i was learning a foreign language or especially english um school english yes it was it was important of course it was important i still learn the importance of um getting the r- correct grammar of english language uh, especially when I translate simultaneously. I sometimes break the English sentence structure, so I have to go back to the um, grammar books in order to get that right. But at the same time, it's not only about learning English on, on, on a textbook. I also learned English through, for example, Linkin Park, if, if you know it. Um, <laughs> and that's that, that's a you know rock band or maybe metal band, rap band, really globally famous. Um, I was really sad that... Um, uh, Chester Bennington passed away almost four years ago, but I love them. I love them. And I love their songs. I love their, um, lyrics. So I tried to sing their songs just like, just like I was pretending to be Chester, uh, or, or Mike Shinoda, um, and others, um, through music. Yeah, exactly. So music uh, that's connected to the physicality. Uh, yeah, if I uh, answer to your question short, so it's not only about writing or mental, or it's also about physical um, aspects of uh, learning language. Yeah. Yeah. One of the main reasons why I was very interested in connecting with you 
was because of a post that I saw online on LinkedIn, actually, which is one of my yep. favorite, you know, platforms. Um, because I, I do, I, I do learn a lot from, from a lot of the posts that are shared when they're, you know, it's great content. Yep. Um, but it had to do with this, um, this notion of a word that I'm going, we're going to get into it now. And you're, you're, you're going to help us, you know, break this down, right? Yeah, it's yeah. this whole notion of de-verbalization. Yeah. Before we get into that specific word, I'd like for us, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with what you just, what you just said with regards to the physicality of things. And, mm -hmm. and the flip side of that, um, there's something else that, that also goes with de-verbalization, which is, I'd mm -hmm. like to ask you directly, what is the language spoken by the entire population on this planet? Yeah, great, great question. The answer is imagination. Imagination, yeah, which goes yeah. with this notion of de-verbalization. And I think, you know, because it's such a, there's a lot to it, you know, that I know we're not going to be able to get in, you know, the, 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 whatever time we've got left here on the platform, but for those listeners that are unfamiliar with it, um, could you help us understand what deverbalization is? Yeah. Thanks for that question. Um, this is a concept still, not a, not a solid theory mm -hmm. in the interpreting world or interpreting studies. Uh, I started learning about deverbalization um, while in the graduate school. I'm still in the graduate school of Kobe City University of Foreign Studies, or KCAFS, in Kobe. And that's when I learned that Danica Seleskovic, back in the 1970s, proposed the concept of deverbalization. What it is, is that um, when we translate or interpret, especially simultaneously, we do not translate the words themselves we translate the image that the words create that's the point uh, of that's important point about deverbalization so we think or people think that we translate the words um, but that actually but that's actually what the machine translations do and what i found out is that what we translate is not the words themselves what we translate is the meaning of the words um, and that's the difference between machine translation and, you know, uh, human translators. Um, yeah, just to put it simply, um, that's about deverbalization, like getting out of the world of language and getting into the world of meaning. That's what we humans do. Yeah. And I think I, I would even add that's what a, a good interpreter does, right, is uh, is not getting out of the world of, yeah, of, of, of words and into the yeah. world of meaning, because, yeah, you're right. It's there's this this um, visualization process that is happening as the speaker is speaking and before you're, you know, rendering into the target language. And you just mentioned that it's still a theory, um, Ryohei. So is this, is this a popular theory or an unpopular theory in the, in the interpreting industry, would you say? Yeah, um, but just to let you know, it's still a concept, not, not a solid I'm theory. I'm sorry, a concept. Yeah, it, Thank you. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I don't think it is popular, um, but people in the graduate school or above, or people teaching interpreting at universities, they all know about deverbalization. Whether they agree or not, that's a different question, but they do know that. Um, and then most of the practitioners of interpreting do know that. 
uh, I mean, uh, do feel that, uh, even though they don't know the word itself. Um, when I say deverbalization and explain that, most of the practicing interpreters in Japan say, yeah, I get it. And I think I'm doing that. Uh, but for graduate students or undergraduate students who are just learning about or starting to learn about interpreting on a textbook, um, I think it is a little harder for them to grasp the concept of deverbalization, like getting out of the language. Um, they, they may feel like, wow, we are studying language, but when we get out of the word of language, where do we go? Uh, what, what is a word of meaning, they might ask. But I, I think that's something that you will get to experience and learn more once you get into the booth of interpreters. Um, yeah, so deverbalization, it's, it's not so popular, but people do know it and people are aware of it when asked. Yeah, I, I read a little bit into it, you know, uh, in preparation for, for this interview. And I remember thinking that it is something that is sort of uh, introduced in, in the schooling. Um, it, it was never labeled deverbalization. It was just, you know, um, uh, you know, put it together in your mind as a story. Imagine what is happening. That is how, you know, it's taught to us for the interpreting, you know, uh, for rendering our interpretation. And so uh, as I'm reading this, I thought, well, that, you know, I guess in a way it's, it's exactly what they're, they're, they're teaching us to do, but it's, it's not a concept that like you just mentioned that necessarily they delve into or focus on. And, and I'm wondering if that is the case, I'm almost wondering why. And I'd like to, you know, get your thoughts on that because there's, there's whole um, articles and, and papers written, uh, I should say, right on, on this concept, starting with uh, Danichka, I believe uh, you mentioned right in the 1970s. So why isn't this more of a of a profound study in the universities, you think? Is it too sciencey? <laughs> hey, before we continue, let me tell you a little bit about the HLS Education Terms Online Glossary. The HLS Education Terms Online Glossary provides easy access to the Spanish translation of educational terms. No more shuffling through countless glossaries. The HLS Network of Language Consultants comprises a veteran district and county office of education translators that have an in-depth knowledge of K-12 terminology. Translators will have access to terms, acronyms, and phrases related to special education, English language learner programs, parent advisory committees, medical and legal vocabulary, academic subject-specific terms, and so much more. In addition, this live glossary allows users to request new terms and tag favorites. Using the HLS Education Terms online glossary will increase your translation speed, accuracy, and vocabulary consistency. Try a free 30-day trial today by visiting www.hlsglossary.com. Great question. Um, I think I think I'm still exploring the answer for myself, but. What I think is that there is a, the same kind of parallels or, or um, dual world or two items that we can compare in the same way as I talked about the physicality as well as the mentality of learning a foreign language, right? So let's say the world of language is the same as a learning language in a textbook. But let's say that learning foreign language with the physical movement, like listening to Linkin Park, 
to the world of meaning. So if we can compare that, maybe it's these are the two different worlds, but they actually are talking about the same thing. They are kind of the complementary parts of a big picture, two important integral part of parts of the one big picture of what interpreting is. And then I think this is not a new invention. Mm-hmm. This is not a new invention. People know it. Um, and I think the, the, the contribution of Danita Sovskovich, if I can tell, is that she verbalized it right. <laughs> in, in a really paradoxical way. She verbalized it, the word deverbalization. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think sometimes we need to define a word, define a concept that's sometimes only in someone's mind. Like only after verbalizing it, deverbalization started to be verbalized. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I imagine like for, you know, interpreters out there that are are hearing this concept for the very first time, I'm sure, you know, if interested, they'll go out there and start doing a little bit more research, which is, yes, it's definitely um, quite an interesting uh, concept, concept to mm-hmm. hear about. Um, but just to give them sort of an idea, walk us through how an interpreter would use this, you know, in real time. Let's say we're, you know, we're doing a simultaneous interpretation. Let's let's slow it down to kind of give them a visual, uh, you know, have them use their imagination <laughs> and see how this would this would play out in an interpretation scenario. Yeah, thanks for that question. I'm still trying to figure out how simultaneous interpreting works. I've never broken my brain to see inside, so I don't really know about what? how it's going. <laughs> Just joking. But, you know, how do we do this? Um, I think it's like um, when words are coming in, um, I try to compare this to a video game called Tetris. Do, do you know Tetris? Yes, I do know okay. Tetris. <laughs> All right. So if you know, there are a lot of number of blocks that are kind of powered down to the bottom of the screen and you have to er- erase them right uh, as the blocks go down it's just like simultaneous interpreting for me uh, so the blocks are worse for me so the words will come out uh, come down come down to the box and i have to erase them one by one in a really smooth manner and sometimes they get stuck uh, uh, they get stuck and they they're, they're piled up and and i'm looking at the power of words um, bank of words that will come up to the end. Like sometimes we say game over if we don't finish translating all this stuff. But sometimes these bank of words or, or all this chunk of words can be all erased with deverbalization. Because a lot of words, um, let's say uh, if I can quantify this, let's say 100 words could be just processed with just one imagination, with one image. And then you translate that image and the five or six lines of Tetris will all be erased because 100 words could just describe one thing, one image. So that's one of the weapons, I will say, one of the strategies that we employ um, in order to erase the blocks um, and then really do the simultaneous interpreting. Does it make sense for you? Oh, my gosh. It, it totally. I mean, I could speaking of imagination, I can totally imagine how that yeah. works. Now, now, for someone that is familiar with Tetris, for someone that's not familiar with, with Tetris, we probably just, you know, confuse them even more as to what, <laughs> yeah, sorry what that, that would look like. No, 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 no. That's not that. 
that's their fault. You you guys got to go and try out <laughs> some Tetris. And, but I'm thinking like, you know, I, I love how you explaining it. It gives us an understanding of what is happening in our brain, because I'm I'm thinking it is like another um, technique, right? Like, uh, I mean, it's just, it's, it's clearly defined. I feel like, you know, there's, like I said, there's so much, uh, uh, written on it, at least from, uh, the short research that I was doing. And, and I'm thinking, you know, like it's, this technique is broken down to where you can actually visualize what it is they're trying to say, you know, that we're, we're having to do in order for this to take place in order for deverbalization to take place. And in your 2019 TEDx uh, talk that, um, you know, I really, I really like, by the way, and I'm going to include that link in the episode notes so that people can go out and take a look at it. You know, you give a great example of uh, the very simple word bank, right? Uh, walk us through that example. I mean, if they want to see the video and the images, then they'll have to go check out the video itself. It's only a 12 minute video, but it's so, so, so good. Um, but walk walk us through uh, what that example looks like, Ryohei, with the word bank. Yeah, thanks. Um, that explanation, as I found out later, was not perfect. So I'm just trying to still explore how I can explain better. But at that point of time, uh, when I was trying to connect the deverbalization part to the word bank or, or the origin of the word bank. That's uh, This is how it looks. For example, when you think about the word bank in a financial context, you look at the pile of money uh, or money that is piled up, right? So that's one imagination of the word bank. And on the other side, on the other hand, you go to a river and then you see a river bank. And what you see there is a pile of sand or soil. And that's how you how, how the riverbank is built. So from that, from two, uh, from these two examples, we can see that the bank itself has a connotation or implication that something is piled up, right? And then from that, uh, from that viewpoint, we can also understand the meaning of data bank, for example. Are we uh, are we exchanging money with the data? If you don't have any visualization or imagination of that word bank from this deverbalization perspective, you ask this kind of uh, um, uh, question, like, well, what is data bank? But with this deverbalization, you get to understand like, okay, data bank, a lot of data is there, right? Uh, it's almost like a data, wa- data warehouse. Right. So, I was going to say data as you're saying, as you're saying that I'm thinking storage, like data yeah. storing. Yeah. Like a warehouse. Yeah, exactly. So that was the um, uh, explanation I gave at the time. I I still believe that we can do the imagination and the deverbalization with an ind- individual word. But um, after I delivered my talk and shared the, the link to one of the really prominent professors, professors in France, uh, she said, it's not 100% correct. <laughs> mm. um, she said that we cannot deverbalize an individual word. We can only deverbalize a sentence or the context because we need a kind of context. Uh-huh. And the word deverbalization doesn't have any context as itself. And that, that's what she pointed out. And I, uh, that was a learning, a uh, new learning for me. Like, okay, uh, we cannot deverbalize everything if we don't have any context, right? 
So that really uh, gave me further thoughts about how devalization works and how devalization does not work. Right? Mm. And I find out that based on my experience, devalization works the best when we know the speaker, when we know the speaker's background, we know that when we know the speaker's philosophy, thoughts, um, and all that stuff. And then I can imagine better. Um, I have an experience of translating, as I said, um, Audrey Tan. And uh, the original assignment request came back in April, three months before uh, the, the actual interpreting day. And since that time, for the past three months, I was watching his, uh, sorry, her videos on YouTube, well, like over and over again to get his, sorry, her philosophy um, about digital or social innovation uh, from a digital perspective. So that's what I try to do not only just checking the terms, um, but also the philosophy or the thoughts behind it, behind the words that he, she speaks, sorry. Um, yeah, so that's um, very much connected to how we can deverbalize and how we cannot deverbalize. When we cannot deverbalize, we're just living in the world of language. We're just stuck with the words that they are speaking, not really getting into the world of meaning or world of philosophy, world of thoughts. Uh, that these speakers uh, create, uh, if I can put it this way. Yeah. No, I really like that because I think that um, part of what I, I really appreciated about this concept is the fact that um, it's it doesn't make us so systematic. Mm-hmm. It's not a system that is followed that can be programmed into an AI per se, yeah. right? And that can do the same thing. Um, and it almost makes me even think of what actors need to do in order to embody whoever it is that they are going to be uh, personifying, right? So I, they do basically the same thing you did, that they study the person, you know, they, they, they mimic the movement, the gestures, you know, even facial, you know, like even to a point, uh, I've did a little bit of, of, uh, maybe, I don't know. I watched it on TV, who knows, but I, I do remember, uh, reading or seeing that even to the point where they even begin to physically look like the character, you know, like really look like the character, no makeup or anything, you know, <laughs> with yeah. the help of no makeup, just because they're really embodying, you know, who they're studying. So I almost feel like there is a notion of that, even in the, you know, well preparation of, you know, of an interpreter, of a language professional. Um, and, and we see it across the board, like we see it in localization, um, video game localization specifically. I had a guest here on the show that spoke about how she acts out the, the you know, the characters in the video game to make sure that what she's translated, what she's giving out is natural, feels natural. Like it's, you know, so, yeah, like I just when I was reading all this stuff and listening to your video, I'm thinking, my God, there's like so much about this. But I think what really stood out is like it's not so systematic. It's not like it goes in, it goes out, you know, it's input output. And so that's why an AI can do it. No, like you said, like AIs are doing, you know, spitting out words only think we all know that, but uh, it's very difficult to explain that to someone that doesn't know that, right? Like that, that isn't part of the profession. So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. If I can point to that or add to that comment, um, one of my bad hobbies is to find mistakes in the Google Translate <laughs> or machine <laughs> translators. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, and I sometimes do the tagging, uh, saying like Google Translate of the day, and then I uh, just do uh, the listing out of the, all the mistranslations that Google does. Um, ah, but I find a good, it, that's a good hobby <laughs> uh, yeah, for language professionals. <laughs> Yeah, for language professionals, but I think I will be sued by Google if I continue <laughs> doing that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do find a pattern where Google or machine translation, I should say, uh, do make mistakes. Uh, for example, we have a lot of Japanese proverbs um, that has to go through the process of deverbalization and imagination in order to get the right answer. And one of the great examples is the Japanese proverb, uh, yamai wa kikara. That means that in order to in order not to get sick, you have to feel strong. You have to be strong, um, mentally strong. Like, uh, okay, I'm not gonna get the cold. I'm I'm not gonna get the COVID nineteen. You have to be you know mentally strong first of all. Mm. That's what it means. Yamai wa kikara. So I put that into Google Translate. I'm sorry, Google, uh, don't sue me, please. <laughs> But、Dating、they came、facts. up with. Yeah, getting facts. Yeah, I'm saying I'm, I'm giving you facts,、uh, further improvement、uh, suggestions.、Exactly. Let's take it that way. <laughs> so I、uh, used the Google Translate to get.、Uh, I was interested in getting the results, and it said I'm sick.、Um, so it's totally misinterpreting, mistranslating. Because Yamai wa Kikara, that proverb is about let's not get sick, but the translation was I'm sick. So it's already. The being in the state of being being sick, so that was really um grave mistranslation. I have to point out. So、wow. that also means that, as you said, it's not like systematic transaction or processing. We have to go through the process of imagination and deverbalization in order to get the right meaning, correct meaning that we can understand, but we can feel, you know, on the other side. We should feel the meaning of something. For example, a Japanese society is really um. Law context society. When we mean, for example,、um, yes. When we say yes, sometimes it means no.、Um, <laughs> that's that's how Americans are puzzled with their answers. Like when there is a business proposal and Japanese people say yes, they actually mean、uh, they mean no. So that's why <laughs> one of the reasons why <laughs> Japanese people are hard to understand. Uh, but uh, you know,、uh, that's where the imagination has to come in to really get the meaning of yes or no. Uh, of course,、uh, the meaning doesn't come from the the verbal context. It, it also come comes from the nonverbal context. In, for for example, facial expressions. How how did she or he say that? In what context and stuff like that. So、um, I, I think that's related to the imagination part of it.、Um, that's why I'm talking about the example of Google Translate. No, I love it. I think it's you know it's such a it, it's just such a great topic that, like I said, I at least in my studies, I'm sure somewhere out in the world, and our listeners might you know、um, chime in,、uh, you know, usually when they when they are connecting about the episode. And tell me, you know, where they do teach this. I'm sure in some parts of the world and universities, you know, there's a professor out there that is actually teaching this to their、uh, interpreting students.、Um, but as far as my experience was,、um, it's been through the connections, like you know, people like you that that are out there sharing this information that we're able to land on it and and just expand on it, right? Like because it's、yeah. sometimes you know it it helps us understand even. Just ourselves. Never mind the profession, you know. Never mind uh, uh, other individuals. I remember 
posting a video one day of, you know, a real time interpretation with no sound. It was just, you know, um, but I remember asking because I realized I closed my eyes a lot. You know, this was RSI, right? So I'm doing a remote simultaneous, but it's through uh, what well, maybe it's VRI through video. And um, and I'm 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 closing my eyes because I'm visualizing you know, what the exactly. speaker is saying. And for me, because I am a visual learner, very high, actually, uh, visual learner, I feel um, it, it's easier for me, particularly right now with, you know, every you see everyone else on the screen, right? Like through Zoom, there's so many people and so many movements and so many gestures. I just want to focus on the speaker. And so I'll close my eyes in order to really highly concentrate and see what it is, how how he's expressing, like you just said, like if he's saying something or a speaker sounds angry, I want to imagine him angry because maybe his video is off, you know, (laughs) so I want to convey that meaning in the same way. So no, um, if I can comment on that, too, uh, I also felt the same, like in order to really understand or to de-verbalize, we sometimes have to close our eyes and do the interpretation, especially in the time of COVID-19. As you said, RSI is now on the rise. Almost 99.9% of my interpreting job recently has have taken online, uh, have taken place online. So yeah, I do agree to what you're saying. Yeah. And I, when I post that video, I posted that video and I asked, you know, I was pleasantly surprised that there were people that, that said, yes, I do that too. But then that I actually had people that, um, you know, it, it seemed like that was very foreign, like what? No, I, I don't do that. You know? And I'm thinking, okay, so this isn't, I imagine it's not a process necessarily physically that everyone closes their eyes, but the imagination piece, how can you extract that? I think, you know, that's, that's there because that's just part of our nature, right? Yeah, I, I think exactly. I think we see it mentally before we can actually say it. Yeah, Would you agree? And, uh, yeah, I, I do agree. And that's one of the reasons why deverbalization, as I said, is a concept, not a theory, because that's happening inside of uh, a person's head or brain. So it's not really possible to mm. uh, do the analysis of what's happening inside of someone's brain. Um, so that's why it's not theorized yet. Uh, it just uh, still is a concept, but I st- believe that personally, I believe that it's a really strong concept, although it is not really made into the evidence or really uh, objective evidence or theorized uh, form, but I think we just feel it. Uh, we just um, think it is, it's, it's there. And I just hope that everybody else is doing the same. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm even thinking like, um, here's an idea for you, Google. Um, you know, if you, instead of creating an AI that's outputting words or text, like, you know, do images, <laughs> you know, how those yeah. people that are in real time, you know, when someone is speaking, they're actually drawing out the story in real time. Like, wow. Anyway, now, now I'm going way off beat. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but actually, yeah. Uh, another suggestion to Google um, it would be this: like, you're welcome, Google. When... Like, we're just so much ideas. <laughs> yeah, we'll be appreciated or sued. Uh, either <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> but um, I was thinking about this uh, singularity. Have you ever heard about this word singularity? Yes. When, yeah, uh, technology or AI will overtake uh, take over humans' brain or intelligence. I think this will happen in the interpreting world only when 
AI or machine translators think just like humans. Um, because when we think, we do imagine. We cannot really stop imagination. So mm. when machine translation starts to imagine and think and gets the meaning, not the words, then that's exactly, I think, when the the um, technological innovation or another or the, the singularity will really happen and start to threat our existence as a human interpreter. But nobody nobody knows. Okay, never mind Google. You don't you don't need our ideas. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Right. This has been such a great conversation, uh, Ryohei. And I I always like to, you know, yeah, talk about your knowledge, talk about how you got into the profession, but also be able to share with our listeners some of those challenges that were unique to you in your experiences, in, you know, in the professional setting. So is there a moment in time or was there just a, a a challenge that you remember was something something that stood out and that you've overcome or really learned something out of it. Is there something that you could share with our listeners with regards to the profession? Yeah, thanks a lot for that question. Um, one of the things I have learned for the past 10 years is the diversity of English language. We, we just say English language, but it sounds like English language has a number of subcategories uh, what I mean by that is the accent of English, right? Um, when I work in the business settings, we do not work with Americans only. We work with British. We work with Italian. We work with, uh, with Indians. Um, I, I work a lot with Indians. And that's how you get the accent, English accents of Indians and Americans and others. So diversity in terms of the accent, I think that was the biggest challenge that I have faced and still trying to conquer. Um, but on the other hand, one of the unnecessary benefits that I've got uh, through this experience is that I can imitate some of those English accents and make people laugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes I do the Indian Indian English accents, like, uh, uh, sorry, I didn't get that. Uh, and people just never stop laughing. And I do the French accent, like, that my raison is the finest in the Paris. Uh, something like that. Um, <laughs> and they just start laughing. <laughs> so that means that there is a diversity of language which we have to conquer. And, and I think that should be also reflected in the university curriculum. Like if you want to be working as an interpreter, you should not only work on the interpreting aspect of it, but also understand English as something that has diversity um, in terms of accent, in terms of the use of words, um, and we the fact the fact that considering the fact that we have more non-native English speakers than the native speakers in the world, we should be exposed more to the non uh, non-native English speech um, that would be uh, more important for us. Like in Asia, we have a lot of um, uh, English accents as well uh, from Southeast Asia, especially. So, uh, yeah, I think that's uh, one of the challenges I have uh, faced and still trying to conquer in terms of the um, uh, different accents of English language. Wow. Yeah, no, that's a, such a great point. Particularly, I think that um, now through the pandemic and, you know, as we experience life after, right, and I'm, I'm throwing yeah. up, you know, air quotes here, uh, the pandemic, it, what business is like, you know, and, and I think more than ever, we've become, you know, this, this global 
you know, uh, business, uh, really that, you know, or, or rather we're having more global businesses, um, where, yeah, we're, we're having to either use a language connector, you know, an interpreter, a translator in the transactions or are doing business with, you know, uh, across seas. And we've got, uh, this diversity, even in the English language itself, how does an interpreter overcome that if we can, you know, like, is that something that can be uh, shared at a university level? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If I, if I can try to summarize what I've been talking about, I think these puzzles are, are now coming into the sort of piece. Um, I talked about the diversity in terms of the accents of English language. And I talked about the Verbalization, and we you talked about the post COVID nineteen era uh, time that will come in the future, because we are still working online. This means that we have a limitation in the visibility of the speakers, as you said. Like some people, speakers are turning off their videos, which will require us to have more visualized, sorry, imagination and deverbalization technique um, than ever, because we used to meet face to face. It was easy for us to see the physical movements. Uh, there was a visibility there, but now we have less visibility. And I think with this online or RSI going on more and more, I think we need to really develop our skills of uh, deverbalization. And another one uh, is the English accents. So English accents needs to, uh, in order to understand English, English accents, we need to have the deverbalization and imagination. Why? Because sometimes people pronounce words totally different ways than we just assume. For example, Chinese English is a one very good example. The other day I was translating a Chinese speaker in English and he said, I have a cushion in the middle of the conversation. He said, I have a cushion. I, I thought, oh, do you have a cushion? Okay, do you want to sleep? Um, <laughs> do you want to go to the sofa, right? Uh, but in the middle of the conversation, in the middle of the presentation, you, you, you don't want to say, by, by cutting off a conversation to say, I want to go to sleep. And I just did the deverbalization, imagination to understand that he has a question instead of cushion. So um, that uh, also comes into play with the fact that we need to really deverbalize and understand what he or she really wants to say from the English accent point of view. Yeah, so that's uh, what I wanted to say uh, in terms of summary. In, te in terms of uh, Tetris, like you won that game then. You totally won at that <laughs> moment because, yeah, if we would have focused just on the word and the moment and the what is he trying to say rather than using the deverbalization as a technique, mm. um, you know, then, yeah, yeah, we, we would have gotten stuck. But right. all great points, all great points, Ruhei, and this conversation has been amazing. Before we conclude our conversation for today, I'd love the opportunity for you to share a couple of things. And the first one is, what recommendation would you give any up-and-coming interpreter that would like to get in the field, that would like to get started? Sorry, guys, you can't go on a trip for three months like Ryohei did. Not yet, at least, probably. But what recommendation would you like to give that you wish you would have heard as you were entering the field? Yeah, um, interpreting education is one of the focused areas that I've been engaged in. So I'm trying to develop my future interpreters, right? And, and the message to them is like, um, a, lot of the, a lot of times you want to go uh, to the top of the mountain or top of the cliff, uh, meaning like this is how you prepare for the interpretation job. 
right? And this is a document they have to read through. This is the interpreting booth that you'll be interpreting. And then you know, uh, sometimes in a training of for interpreters, you stop there, and then uh, you stop there, and the trainer says, "Yeah, if you become interpreters, you'll be jumping off from this cliff, but you don't do it now. Bye bye. But <laughs> you have to jump off the cliff, <laughs> and you have to really experience that. I, I think that's uh, one of the very very important things for the um, trainers of interpreters. Like we have to let the students jump off the cliff." experience and uh, we let them manage how to swim in the vast sea of interpreting. Um, so that's one of the things I wanted to say. And under the COVID-19 situation, what we can do is go to YouTube, go to TED Talk, go to any podcast, um, uh, you know, programs like yours to just practice um, any speech, simultaneous interpretation. There are a lot of millions of speeches out there that you can really practice. And the amount of practice, the frequency of practice that you do really determines how, how many jobs they, they can get and how, how far you can go from there. So yeah, under the COVID-19, this is a great opportunity. You have more time uh, to do the uh, interpretation, interpretation practice. So go ahead and do it. Jump off a cliff, get hurt, but you don't really get hurt physically. So, <laughs> yeah. Don't take it literally. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Just imagine, <laughs> imagine, just realize what I meant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. Ryohei, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, you can first go on to the YouTube and uh, type just TEDx Kobe. Oh, Kobe, by the way, is spelled out K O B E, Kobe. Uh, that's the city next to Osaka Prefecture, by the way. And you will find my TEDx talk uh, titled, We Are All Interpreters. And my name is Ryohei Onishi. So you'll find my talk there. And at the same time, I have a YouTube channel. And you will type Yugi. And uh, I have some English uh, lessons that I'll be uploading in Japanese, I'm sorry. But um, yeah, I'm trying to teach English to the wider audience, maybe to the future generations, maybe to my uh, daughter when she grows up and stuff like that. So, yeah, go to YouTube and uh, type Yugi, Y-U-G-I, and maybe English or English grammar uh, uh, in addition to that uh, for you to find me. Excellent. And you're also on LinkedIn, correct? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. (laughs) Yeah. So I'll make sure to have those links on the episode notes for anyone that is interested in connecting with Ryohei. He's all the way out in Japan, but if we made it work, California and Japan, then you can make it work as well. Ryohei, thank you so much for your time. I sincerely appreciate everything that you shared today. Definitely dropped a lot of knowledge. There's a lot of good stuff, you know, out there for us to continue reading and expanding our knowledge in this great profession. I thank you for the opportunity to connect with you and have a little chat. And then of course, to share it with our listeners. So take care and we'll be in touch. Yes. Thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the talk itself. Thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.